I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5, we'll look at the whole chapter this morning. The sermon is entitled, The Lord Pronounces Judgment, Part 2. Listen now to the living and active Word of God. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely, O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are great. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Go up through her vine rows and destroy but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Your fortified cities in which you trust, they shall beat down with the sword. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make 
a full end of you. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Declare this in the house of Jacob. Proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like flowers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they have become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you asking that you would soften our hearts, grant that we might have hearts that, that fear you, that tremble before you, that remember your awesome power and majesty, that rejoice with gratitude at your good gifts. Grant, Father, that we might have hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone, that we might be sensitive to your direction, not going our own way, but following after you, looking by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us. Grant us eyes to see the glory of Christ in the text before us this morning and hearts that would follow after him, for he is indeed our good shepherd. He is the suffering servant who was able to lay down his life that we might have life through him. And we give you praise for it. Make your word now, we pray, an effectual means of the salvation of your elect people. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, this morning we continue our new series through Jeremiah. In chapter 1, if you recall, we saw how the Lord called Jeremiah to be his prophet during the last year of the reign of King Josiah, which would have been around 627 B.C. And he continued in that service until the year Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians 
during the reign of King Zedekiah in 587 B.C. and just a little bit beyond that. So for around 40 years, Jeremiah served the Lord as a prophet. In chapter 1 and verse 5, the Lord told Jeremiah that He had appointed him to be a prophet to the nations. He had set him apart for that purpose, saying in verses 9 through 10, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And then in chapter 2 and verses one, in verse 1 through chapter 3 and verse 5, we saw Jeremiah in action for the first time as, as the Lord commanded him to go up to Jerusalem and to preach His Word in the public square. And through that Word, the Lord brought His case against His people like a husband suing his wife, his adulterous wife, for divorce. And then in chapter 3 and verse 6 through chapter 4 and verse 4, the Lord chastised Judah diagnosing her fundamental problem, which was her half-hearted repentance, which she had demonstrated during the, the reforms of King Josiah. But even as he chastised her for her half-heartedness before him, he also graciously called her to be reconciled to him through genuine, wholehearted repentance. And then last week, of course, we looked at the first part of a longer section in Jeremiah's prophecy which runs from chapter 4 and verse 5 to chapter 6 and verse 30, so through the end of chapter 6. And in this section, the Lord delivers yet another word of judgment through His prophet Jeremiah, but this time He does it through a series of prophetic visions, three, of, three visions to be precise. The first, which we looked at last time, appears in chapter 4 and verse 5 through chapter 4 and verse 31, as the Lord describes in vivid detail the sounding of a trumpet blast of alarm and the subsequent flight of the inhabitants of the land of Judah to their fortified cities where they hope to find refuge from the invading Babylonian army. But those refuges quickly turn into prisons as the Babylonian army conducts sieges to starve the people out. And that's what we see in the second vision, which is our text for this morning. In chapter 5, the Lord pictures the way panic will grip the inhabitants of Jerusalem during the coming siege. Eventually, that siege has its intended end effect, uh, which leads to the third and final vision in chapter 6, which we'll see, Lord willing, next week as the Lord describes yet another trumpet blast of alarm but this time, the call of alarm is not to retreat to Jerusalem, but to flee from it, though there's nowhere for the people to go. So in this series of visions, we see an example of what the Lord meant in chapter 1 when He told Jeremiah that He had set him over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow. In fact, in our text for this morning, the Lord commands Jeremiah to go into his vineyard to strip away the branches because they're not his. And he tells them to destroy, he tells him to destroy, to destroy. Judah is one of the kingdoms that the Lord intends to destroy, although not making a full end through his prophetic word. So in the overall flow of Jeremiah's prophecy, we've moved from the Lord's identification of Judah's problem in, in chapter 2, namely her lack of love 
for him through her spiritual adultery, through her idolatry, to his proposed solution in, verse, or in chapter 3, namely reconciliation with him through the grace of true repentance, to a foretelling of where all this is ultimately headed in chapters 4 through 6, which of course is the execution of his judgment against Judah by way of the Babylonian invasion. And so as we look at the second of these prophetic visions this morning, what we'll do is divide the text into two sections, just as we did last time, two sections. The first, uh, verses 1 through uh, 19, where we see Jeremiah reports on Jerusalem's injustice. And then second, verses 20 through 31, where we see the Lord reports on Jerusalem's injustice. So Jeremiah reports on Jerusalem's injustice, and then the Lord reports on Jerusalem's injustice. What we have here is God commands Jeremiah to go into Jerusalem to look, to evaluate, and then to report back to him what he finds. He does that in the first section, and then after that, the Lord gives his own report, and the Lord sees the heart. So let's look in that first section there, verses 1 through 19, where we see Jeremiah reports on Jerusalem's injustice. Look again at verse 1. The text says, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. So now that the inhabitants of Judah have fled for refuge to Jerusalem under the Babylonian siege, the Lord commands Jeremiah to run to and fro, searching the city for just one just man. And why? Well, he says that he may pardon Jerusalem. The Lord's command here harkens back to Genesis chapter 18 and verses 22 and following which narrates, you remember, Abraham's intercession for the city of Sodom on behalf of his nephew Lot. At that time, Abraham appealed to the justice of God, asking in a series of questions in which the total number of people, you remember, diminished from 50 to 45 to 40 to 30 to 20, and then finally to 10. Whether the Lord would destroy the whole city of Sodom, sweeping away the righteous with the unrighteous, if even 10 righteous men could be found within it. Of course, the Lord agreed, promising that He would not. But there was a problem. Not even ten righteous men could be found within the whole city of Sodom. And thus the Lord executed His judgment against Sodom by raining down fire and brimstone upon it. And now Jerusalem, the city of David, not wicked Sodom, Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of God, has fallen even further away from the Lord than the wicked Sodom. Jeremiah will not be able to find even one righteous man within Jerusalem. As we see in the next two verses, look at verses 2 through 3. The text says, though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? 
You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Jeremiah now reports on what he finds during his search. Summarizing the spiritual condition of the people of Jerusalem, notice, by the way they lie to one another. All human society, whether its most basic unit, namely the marriage relation between husband and wife, or or the family unit, or the church, or the state, every society depends upon trust. If those in relation to one another can't trust one another, then they can't love one another. And if they can't love one another, then they must hate one another. And if they hate one another, then they can't live in mutually beneficial relations with one another. This is why societies fail. This is why marriages fail. It's why families fail. It's why churches fail. It's why nations fail. Ultimately, such deception, such lying, such inability to trust one another leads to either anarchy, total chaos, or totalitarianism. And so when Jeremiah diagnoses Jerusalem's spiritual condition by the way they lie to one another, another, even in the most serious matters, even as they solemnize their promises to one another with oaths, but nonetheless swear falsely to one another, he cuts to the heart of the matter which is love to both God, the God by whom one swears, and neighbor, the one to whom one swears. If Jeremiah can't find a single person who loves God and neighbor in the whole city of Jerusalem, if he can't find a single person who does justice, because that's fundamentally what it means to do justice, then how can the Lord pardon Jerusalem? Only the one who loves is ultimately concerned with telling the truth. Only the one who loves is ultimately concerned with keeping His promises. Loving one another means telling one another the truth. And keeping our promises to one another. And that's why Jeremiah asks rhetorically, O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? The assumed answer, of course, is yes. The eyes of the Lord do look for truth. Because He is truth. Because He is love. But as he looks for truth in Jerusalem, as Jeremiah looks for truth in Jerusalem, there's none to find, only falsehood. Jeremiah then notes just how pervasive that falsehood is. It's so pervasive that Jerusalem's citizens aren't just lying to one another, they're lying to themselves. 
Though the Lord has struck them down for their sin, they have felt no anguish for their sin, he says. Though the Lord has consumed them for their sin, they've refused to take correction from their sin. Instead, they've made their faces harder than rock. In other words, they've become completely calloused and desensitized to their sin and to the Lord, such that they refuse to repent before Him. In this, we get a glimpse of what the Lord will later describe in chapter 17 and verse 9, and this is probably one of the most popular verses in the whole of Jeremiah. The Lord describes the human heart saying, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Of course, the answer is not a creature. The creature who has the heart, can't even understand his own heart, but only the Creator. He understands the heart. He sees the heart. Humanity in the estate of sin and misery is totally depraved and therefore blind to its own spiritual condition before the Lord. Only the Lord can open our eyes so that we see ourselves as we truly are. So that we no longer deceive ourselves into thinking everything's okay, even though that's objectively not true. And the Lord opens our eyes to see ourselves as we truly are through the effectual call by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 4 through 5. Jeremiah continues... Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they, they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Jeremiah apparently began his search among the commoners, among the poor and the uneducated in Jerusalem, and thus he surmises that perhaps that's why he's been unsuccessful in his search for a righteous man. And so he determines to go and to, and, and to speak to the great in Jerusalem, to the educated. Surely they'll know the way of the Lord. Surely they'll know the justice of their God. But all he finds is more disappointment. Describing that all from the least to the greatest has broken the yoke and burst their bonds apart. Now that's, that's a very interesting image, I think, there, beloved. Jeremiah is talking about people who remain in bondage to their sin, but he describes them in just the opposite terms. He describes them as having broken the yoke, as having burst their bonds. So the question arises, what yoke? What bonds? And of course, the answer is the Lord's yoke, His bonds. Jesus speaks of saving faith in Him in these exact terms. Perhaps He had this passage on His mind. We don't know. But we see it in Matthew chapter 11 in verses 25 through 30. 
when he prays to the Father just after pronouncing his judgment upon several unrepentant cities, just like Jeremiah is being called to do here. The Lord Jesus, after pronouncing his woes, says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Then he addressed the crowd, of course, saying, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And here's the image. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here is the subtlety of sin, beloved. Sin promises freedom. And it may even feel freeing in the moment. But there is no such thing as freedom, not true freedom, apart from slavery to God. In other words, there is enslaving slavery and there is freeing slavery. And you must either be enslaved by your slavery or freed by your slavery. There's no middle way. There's no third option. Sin is enslaving slavery. Obedience to God is freeing slavery. Paul taught this same principle in Romans chapter 6 and verses 15 through 18. You remember when he asked, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? He's very clear. We are not saved by our obedience. We are not justified before God by our obedience. We are justified by faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. It is Christ who justifies. Not us, we don't justify ourselves, but having been justified as a gracious gift of God by faith alone, what then? Are we to continue in sin because we're no longer under the law, that is, as a means of justification, but under grace? Paul says, by no means, by no means. And notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, you misunderstood me. Actually, you need to believe and obey, and then you'll be justified. doesn't say that. He says, by no means, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And listen to what he says next. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, in bondage to sin, totally depraved, have become obedient from the heart 
to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of righteousness. So there is enslaving slavery, which is your sin, and there is freeing slavery, which is obedience to God, the pursuit of true righteousness. And only those whose hearts have been transformed by the grace of God can be obedient from the heart and actually follow His law as a rule of life. As the the law by which they are set free more and more as they're sanctified in the power of the Spirit before God, set free from their sin, set free from falsehood, set free unto the truth. Look at verse 6. The text continues. Jeremiah says, Therefore a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn to pieces because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are great. Now last week we saw how Jeremiah protested the Lord's word in chapter 4 and verse 10. You remember He did that just after the Lord, if you go back and look, just after the Lord described Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, as a ravenous lion, which the Lord would unleash on Judah in judgment for her sin. And so now we see that Jeremiah has changed his mind. You see, as we mentioned last week, the Lord is not only concerned to minister through Jeremiah, but to Jeremiah. Jeremiah has changed his mind. The Lord Lord has graciously opened Jeremiah's eyes to see the wisdom of the Lord's ways in the execution of His judgment against Jerusalem. So that Jeremiah enters into agreement with the Lord now, repeating what the Lord previously revealed in chapter 4, namely that Nebuchadnezzar would come from the wilderness of this world like a ravenous lion to destroy Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And don't miss that, beloved. Don't miss the grace of God in opening Jeremiah's eyes to this difficult word, this hard word. God's truth is not not always easy to believe. Sometimes it, it may make you very uncomfortable, such that you may even protest against it like Jeremiah. Just read the Psalms. They're full of protests. But if you belong to the Lord, He won't leave you in that condition. He'll eventually grant you a heart that is content to simply trust Him. And that trust, I think, is almost always coupled with an even more robust awareness of your sin and how utterly dependent you are on Him for His grace. And that's what the Lord has just granted Jeremiah. Jeremiah thinks, surely I'll find a righteous man in Jerusalem. Surely the Lord won't really do what He said He's going to do. But God opens His eyes to see the justice of His judgment against them. Look at verses 7 through 9. 
the Lord now speaks, saying, How can I pardon you, you children? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Now, in verse 1, the Lord commanded Jeremiah to go on a search for just one person who does justice in Jerusalem, saying, that I may pardon her. And so now he returns to that same idea, saying to his people, how can I pardon you? Given Jerusalem's idolatry, given her impenitence, he can't. If he were to pardon the impenitent, he would make himself a liar, you see. He would enter into the deception. And so he describes her sin in terms of her idolatry, her swearing by false gods, because she taught her children to swear by false gods. They swore falsely. They became like that which they worshipped. Nonetheless, the Lord continued to be generous to them. He continued to be gracious to them, feeding them to the full, But how did they respond? Did they grow in their faith? Did they grow in their gratitude and their worship before the Lord? No, they trooped. They trooped in the strength that God gave them to the houses of whores. That's likely a reference, I think, to the cult prostitution of Baal worship. They grew in the lusts of their flesh rather than in their faith and repentance before the Lord. And they went after their neighbor's wives like like beasts, like stallions sniffing the wind for a mare in heat, neighing after the mare. The Lord must therefore punish them for these sins and avenge Himself upon them. Again, lest He enter into the deception lest He encourage them to plunge over the cliff. You see, He must punish them for their sins. Look at verses 10 through 11. The text says, Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. The Lord now describes Judah as a vineyard, and He commands Jeremiah to go through her vine rows to destroy. But how? How will Jeremiah destroy within the vineyard of the Lord? With a sword? Well, yes and no. Not with a conventional sword, but with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As he told Jeremiah, as God told Jeremiah back in chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth to destroy and overthrow. And so he commands Jeremiah to preach his word of judgment against the inhabitants of Jerusalem because of their treachery against him. They have been a treasonous people. 
And notice the contrast between his, his word of truth about them and their words of falsehood about him. He says in verses 12 through 13, they have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, he will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus it shall be done to them. So the Lord uses his word of judgment as a means of judgment against Jerusalem. As Jeremiah and the rest of his prophets prophesy his judgment against them, their rejection of that same word of judgment becomes the final straw for which the Lord brings his judgment down upon them. Rather than hearing his word of judgment and repenting before him, what do they say? He will do nothing. No disaster will come. We won't see sword or famine. The Lord's prophets are just windmakers. His word isn't really in them, which then leads to their persecuting the Lord's prophets. This is the heart of sin, beloved. The heart of sin is the rejection of God's word for a lie. And that's why Satan's first temptation in Genesis chapter 3 was an attack on the truthfulness of God's word as he asked the question, did God really say? But notice what the Lord tells Jeremiah in verse 10. As he commands him to go and to, and to strip the, vine, or the, the branches from the vines of his vineyard, because they're not his. Notice what he says. But make not a full end. We saw this same phrase, if you remember last week in chapter 4 and verse 27, as the Lord said, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. And thus we noted how in the midst of his judgment, the Lord remembers his mercy, his purpose, his purpose in these events runs much further than the immediate events themselves, all the way to the sending of the Messiah into the world and the new administration of the covenant of grace through him. Look at verses 14 through 17. The text continues, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It's an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Your fortified cities in which you trust, they shall beat down with the sword. The words of which the Lord now says, you have spoken are Judah's false words against him. The same words that he just described in the previous verses. Because they've spoken this falsehood against him, this treachery against him, he now promises to make them like wood. And his word, which they continue to speak hypocritically as they go to the temple to worship God. 
He will make his word that they take into their mouths self-righteously, hypocritically, going through the motions like a fire that consumes them. And so we see that not only our God, but his word is a consuming fire. It is a consuming fire of judgment upon all who reject it. And he foretells what he will do through the Babylonians. They are an enduring nation that will eat up Judah's food, Judah's children, Judah's flocks, Judah's vineyards, and Judah's orchards. As they march through the land of Judah, pushing the people back into their fortified cities until eventually they destroy those cities as well. Verses 18 through 19, the text continues, but even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Once again, the Lord remembers his mercy, saying, I will not make a full end. He has a longer purpose in view. And when his people, when, his, when the people ask Jeremiah in days to come, after all of this has come down upon them, why the Lord has done these things to them, he commands Jeremiah to explain to them his justice, that what he did was right. Just as they forsook him, and serve foreign gods in their land, so they shall serve foreigners in a land that is not theirs. He will send them into exile in Babylon. And all this is, is generations before it ever comes to pass. Look at verses 20 through 21. We get to the second section. The Lord reports on, on Jerusalem's injustice. Verses 20 through 28, the text says, Declare this in the house of Jacob, proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they can't pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say in their hearts, let us fear the Lord our God who gives the rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain, and keeps for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquity have turned these away, and your sins have kept good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They lurk like flowers lying in wait. They set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they've become great and rich. They've grown fat and sleek. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. Why? Because they've burst the bonds, right? They've taken off the yoke. They know no bounds in deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the needy. So the Lord now commands Jeremiah to preach before Judah his own diagnosis of their problem. The Lord God will now give his report concerning Judah's injustice or sin before him. And beloved, this is part of what makes the book of Jeremiah such a treasure for us. It's easy to lose sight of this because it seems so negative in a lot of ways. 
but it's such a treasure. If we were left to ourselves to assess our own hearts, we would all remain ignorant. We would all remain blinded by our sin since the heart is deceitful above all things. But the Lord has been gracious to teach us about our hearts and the sin that corrupts them. He's been so kind to teach us about our enemy that we might be prepared and empowered through the working of His Spirit with the Word to wage war against it. And after all, that war is a fight to the death. As the great Puritan theologian John Owen said, either you will be killing sin or it will be killing you. He begins by describing the people of Judah as senseless. They have eyes by which they see the natural, but they're blind to the supernatural. They have ears by which they hear the natural, but they're deaf to the supernatural. They have hearts by which they fear and tremble before natural threats. We've already seen that in this very prophecy. As Babylon comes against Jerusalem, the people will tremble in their boots. Their hearts will fear Nebuchadnezzar. But they won't fear and tremble before the Lord. And don't miss that, beloved. As Jeremiah searched Jerusalem, he could only see outward evidences of sinful hearts. And that's what he reports on. But the Lord sees the heart itself. And the Lord wants His people's hearts. Though the Lord created all things from nothing, though He controls all, even something as powerful as the sea, setting its boundaries and saying, no further. Yet His people remain stubborn and rebellious toward Him, thinking that they can actually hold Him back. In this we see the utter foolishness the utter futility of sin, beloved. But their lack of fear for Him isn't just evident in their rebellion against Him. It's also evident in their lack of thankfulness to Him. Though the Lord continues to love them by sending rain down upon them, and though He continues to feed them with bountiful harvests, yet they have turned away from Him to worship other gods that are really not gods at all. And for this, in this way, they have forsaken those good things in which they, at least for a moment, are delighting. And notice that, beloved. Notice how the Lord says in verse 25, your sins have kept good from you. This is absolutely essential to godly repentance and to to a true pursuit of righteousness in the power of the Spirit. You can't just know, oh, I ought not do that because God will slap my hand, although that's true, He will. But you must come to a place where you see, I want to do that because it's good for me. It's good for me. And so you truly desire to keep God's law. The tragedy of sin is that it promises to deliver good things to us, 
happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment. But it actually keeps all those good things from us. Now think about this with reference to sexual perversions, whether they be viewing lewd things online or fornication or adultery or homosexuality or whatever the latest perversion is, in each case, the love and joy that one so desperately desires is actually kept from you as you pursue those sins. That's the great tragedy of sin, beloved. That's what Christ came to free us from, that we might love Him and obey Him and have truly good things, the greatest of which is Him. The Lord continues by describing how the corruption of the heart leads to the breakdown of society. He says, wicked men lurk among the people. They set traps to catch men. Their houses are full of deceit. They've become outwardly rich, and outwardly they've grown fat and sleek. But inwardly, inwardly, the intentions of their hearts are only evil continually, such that they no longer judge justly. They no longer care for the widow and the orphan. They no longer defend the rights of the needy, but they oppress the weakest among them. Look at verses 29 through 31. The text concludes saying, shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction. My people love to have it so, but what will you do when the end comes? So having concluded this, his report, the Lord now repeats the rhetorical questions that he asked earlier in verse 9 after Jeremiah's report, namely, shall I not punish them for these things? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? And of course, the implied answer is yes, of course. The Lord has been or has seen the appalling and horrible thing that has happened in the land. He has seen how the prophets prophesy falsely. He's seen how the priests rule at their direction. That is according to that falsehood. And he's seen how his people love to have it so. In other words... They love their sin. Why do people commit sin? Because they love it. They love it. They love their sin more than they love their Creator. And in blindness, they don't realize they're being robbed of the only source of true love. The one who can open their hearts up to truly love. And so when the end comes, they will be filled with bitterness and anguish as they suffer the Lord's wrath and curse and hell for eternity. But God has provided another way. He has sent His Son into the world that through His finished work, His perfect obedience to the law and His suffering, the wrath and curse that we deserve for our sin, 
we might be forgiven our sins and accepted as righteous in God's sight through faith in Him. The only thing that can save you from the love of sin is the love of God, which He's chiefly expressed in the giving of His Son for you. We love, as the Apostle John says, because He first loved us. And so I ask you this morning, have you received that love? Jeremiah was a suffering servant. He was given a hard call. He was given a call to go into a land and preach to a people who would reject the very word he preached. And through that word, the judgment of God would come down upon them. God remembers his mercy, though, in the midst of his judgment, as Jeremiah has the privilege of being the first prophet to ever utter the words, new covenant, new covenant. God will establish a new covenant with you in the sending of his son for your salvation, in the sending of another suffering servant. A suffering servant who's not only fully man, but also fully God, and therefore able to change the heart. And that's what Jesus has done. When he gave himself up on the cross, when he rose from the dead, when he did what he did for sinners like you and me, he did it that our hearts might be transformed to love God and to love one another. Have you fled to Christ by faith to take his yoke upon you Have you held out your hands and said, Lord Jesus, I want to be your slave. You be my master. Put the bonds on me, please. Please put the bonds on me that I might be free, truly free. If you've not, I pray that you would do that this morning. Don't throw off the bonds of Christ. Don't throw off the yoke of Christ. Throw off the yoke of sin. Throw off the bonds of sin. And give yourself to the good master who can set you free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for a time to study it together. We give you praise for the way that you, as our creator, know our hearts so thoroughly and are able in your word to diagnose the great sin which afflicts us, the corruption of our hearts. And in this, we see our great need for your grace and the Savior whom you sent to us, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is a good Savior, a good master, so that all who come and take his yoke upon them have rest for their souls. We pray that you would continue to give us rest this day as we seek to worship and serve you to glorify your holy name, keeping the Sabbath day holy. Grant us, our Father, that we might do this with genuine hearts of love for you and for one another. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, would you stand now and let's sing this song of praise, Trinity Hymnal number 243. Oh, quickly come, dread judge of all, number 243.